Hello, and welcome to Projected Futures, where we explore the possibilities of projection mapping. I'm Ryan Ritchie. In every episode, I want to bring you the stories of the people, technologies, and companies who are leading the way in using projection mapping and immersive technologies. Today, my guest is the multi-talented artist Jennifer Steinkamp. Jennifer has been creating video-based immersive art for decades, and she was using projection in groundbreaking art installments before projection mapping even had a name. Additionally, she teaches at UCLA, covering all aspects of 3D design, from 3D printing to game engines and AR and VR projects, all of which is fitting as all of the natural imagery used in her works is created on the computer. Her work has been seen in galleries all over the world, and I'm thrilled to have her on the show. Jennifer, welcome to Projective Futures. Sure, thanks, Ryan. I'm glad to be here. You know, in part, I wanted to start this podcast because the tools to create digitally and specifically with projection mapping have become much more accessible in recent years. But you were really on the forefront of you know, using projection as a means of artistic expression. What did you see in this technology early on and what kind of drew you to to video back uh, at the start of your career? Well, I, I was invited to make a piece, an art piece for a house in Pasadena, which um, was also a, an exhibition place where you could, you know, go and see various artworks. So um, an artist colleague of mine at Art Center, he set up his house to be a public space. And I noticed the windows on his, on his house and I thought, wow, maybe I could create some animations and just project them. And so, you know, I didn't own projectors. I'd never done this before. And uh, I just started calling manufacturers and, and actually finally found somebody who would loan me projectors. And then as the project progressed, I, I got an opportunity to also project in a museum space uh, at the Santa Monica Museum. So it was kind of a double projection across town. And soon after that, I, I, well, it, I realized that the, this house, it, it, it transformed it. it. It looked completely alien sitting, you know, it was a craftsman style house in a uh, sort of in a Pasadena neighborhood. And it just, it was completely just changed everything. And it, it, it was very exciting. Um, actually, before that, I had done a slideshow projection um, at Easy TV in Hollywood of sexist phrases. So it's it kind of, you know, be, that was sort of the beginning of this, kind of thinking of projecting in architecture. And soon after um, I projected on the floor of an art gallery and realized that I could transform space even further um, by creating an immersive situation where your body feels, feels the, 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 the motion and transforms the architecture in a certain way. And so I was doing this long before projection mapping was a term. And so it seems kind of strange, actually. I guess I could have come up with it. I don't know. I just called it projection. <laughs> sure. And when I think about immersive pieces in museums and video installations in museums, 
30 years ago, let's say, it felt to me, now this is just as a visitor, it felt like the museums were almost begrudgingly including them. It, it, you know, they, they would be in a dark corner somewhere. It was rare, at least in my experience, to see an immersive or interactive piece sort of have a prominent position in the museum. And I'm wondering if that's accurate. And if, if so, if you've seen attitudes change through the years, because to me, it seems like right now, you know, there's a lot of interest around immersive pieces. No, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. There, there was certainly. I mean, there was technological limitations. The projectors weren't very bright. They were quite expensive. People didn't know how to, you know, create uh, how to to create a presentation. You know, pretty much had to use laser discs or some kind of videotape, and it was very low resolution. So all these things kind of. You know, created roadblocks. Also, people were very afraid of computers at the time. Now we don't seem to be, which is odd. But <laughs> <laughs> one of my early pieces got purchased by the MoCA in Los Angeles, and that was very exciting. And they exhibited it quite a few times in in various you know ways. And that was a pretty uh, immersive kind of large scale piece. I I later found that. Museums kind of appreciated having their space. You know, a lot of museums have gigantic space, and projection is a, is a nice way to kind of take over that space. And you know, it takes care of some issues for for the museums. And speaking of that space, what are some ways that the space can affect an immersive piece? And how important is it for you to sort of you know be familiar with the space and know where your work will be experienced? I always need to know the space. And what I do is I make a 3D model and uh, using measurements and images and try to, you know, actually try to go there. And also I use virtual reality to look at the space, if, especially if I can't be there, or to look at what maybe it will look like before it's up. Especially if you're building walls or changing things, that, that comes in handy to kind of understand how it's going to feel. I really enjoy having an, a new space and contemplating what what the scale and what the history and what the purpose of the space is or was or the location or the city or, you know, whatever, all the different kind of cultural and historic ideas can come into play. And those I try to use as inspiration for whatever concepts I'm coming up with. So it's often that the space is influencing what ultimately makes sense in that space for you. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of times this, when I get there and see it, the space is so, you know, changes the piece. There's kind of an exchange. The The piece dematerializes the architecture quite often, uh, changing the, you know, feeling of the scale or the feeling of, you know, just the entire space, especially maybe because the room is darker, et cetera. And, um, the, and the entire walls are utilized. The space gets transformed, but in exchange, the, the piece also gets transformed. It becomes something different than what I anticipated because you really can't imagine it until you see it. And then also your experience because there's these two transformations going on and you're experiencing it with your body and your senses. Maybe that's why people are enjoying projection mapping and this sort of large-scale transformation of architecture. 
you know, the one thing that comes to mind in where we are right now in terms of people staying home and uh, being apart from one another, how does the dynamic of experiencing these large scale works with strangers and with other people, how does that affect what people take away from the experience? Um, Maybe it's hard to figure what people take away. I, I know there's a certain amount of pleasure and they always stay much longer than I would ever imagine because the pieces aren't exactly that long. What I want them to maybe think about or experience is this sort of transformation of their feelings. So when you enter, you feel one way. And when you leave, you're, you know, you're, you've kind of been altered a little bit. It's kind of what I think about what happens when you go experience a movie in the theater and you walk out and, you know, you you feel so different. So that's that's what I'm after. Hopefully that's what I get. Um, maybe I need to pull my visitors. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know even when I've been experiencing pieces that I tend to stay longer than I think I will. There, It seems to almost be in stages where at first – you know, you're sort of just just getting your bearings and understanding what's happening, and then it takes a little while for it to sort of, you know, truly Im- immerse you and and really mm-hmm. uh, start to feel, you know, what the what the piece is conveying. In my world, coming sort of from the video production world, and it's very much a linear story that's being told. How do you approach story within your pieces, whether it's using symbolism or or how do you set out at the beginning to get that emotional response you want? It's probably not a story in a beginning, middle, end sort of sense. It's more, I create loops, and so they're more continuous. Um, they, it might go through seasons. That might be the, the you know, the, the story I'm telling, I suppose. The narrative perhaps comes from the concept and the interaction with the space and the, the sort of the idea behind the artwork more than telling a, a, a story. And you'd mentioned earlier they they tend to not be you know terribly long the the loops the links you're creating is mm-hmm. there some you know magical number that you found works best or is it sort of each piece guides you? Uh, they do they have gotten longer over the years uh, that has a lot to do with the technology and how long it takes to render an image. Now they render quite quickly and you can get a lot, you know, can do real time, which is sort of incredible now. That has a little bit to do with it. I guess I want to create something where you don't exactly see the loops. It's the scale, the scale really. Like the piece I made for the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego, the walls are like 90 feet long and I wanted to make something that traverses that entire length. And so I found it that would take five minutes to accomplish that. Otherwise they would be moving too fast. Scale, definitely the larger the scale, the the slower you have to make the work. Otherwise you sort of experience an assault from the imagery rather than, I mean, that could be a good thing actually, if you, that's what you want to achieve. Now I've, I've found that the larger they get, which they do seem to be getting larger than the slower they have to move. So that does affect the duration. But I think when you're younger, you can handle more speed, which is a peculiar kind of ageist thing to say. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I, I wasn't familiar with your work at the time, but I saw uh, Winter Fountains in 
2017 here oh. in Philadelphia. Um, I have a few questions about that, but for people who aren't familiar with that particular work, can you just sort of describe it quickly for us? Sure. I was invited to create an art piece using light to celebrate the centennial of the Benjamin Franklin Parkway, which is this gigantic park that's about a mile long, I believe. And it's surrounded by museums, science museums, a couple science museums, art museums, like three art museums, churches. And so they wanted to create a something for the winter that highlighted this, this centennial event. I researched all these museums and researched Philadelphia and just you know, looked through collections and just thought about this. And then it struck me, well, this is named after Benjamin Franklin. So I researched Benjamin Franklin and he's, and, you know, he's one of our most important scientists. I mean, he lived like 20 lives in one. One of his main contributions was figuring out that uh, lightning was the same thing as static electricity. And I mean, people were completely mystified by lightning at the time. And so I wanted to make a piece that kind of honored that contribution to science and culture. I've made these these pretty gigantic spheres. I'm now I'm forgetting how but they're 13 feet high by 26 feet across. They were created from fiberglass embedded with glitter. So during the day they sparkled a little bit. There was four of them across the parkway. It was important that you could see one from another to another. So they created these like constellations basically. It's kind of like what happens when lightning is formed in a cloud, tiny particles of ice collide and it creates, builds up a charge. And then there's, there's so much that the, the electricity needs to go somewhere. And quite often it hits something on the, on the planet. And anyway, that's when you see lightning. So that's a really non-scientific way to describe it. And I'm not a scientist, but the piece is more of an, you know, inspired by that kind of idea rather than showing you exactly how it happens. So I'm curious about the relationship in terms of your freedom of creation versus the parameters of an organization, (laughs) what they're looking for with, with a work like that, for example. There's some pressure because the organization that put it on, the Association for Public Art, they were the main organizers. And then there were all these clients, all the museums, the whole association of the parkway, and they were also the clients. And so everybody had to approve this, which when you're an artist, that's that's kind of, that's, wow. That's tricky. (laughs) Fortunately, they did approve it. And, you know, the the public people were so happy. I mean, it it really touched my heart. So many people came up to me and thanked me for making my artwork, which, you know, you don't don't experience that um, in a museum kind of context. But, you know, in the public, when you're doing something for the community, it's a completely different uh, kind of relationship. So... Yeah, it's it's a lot of pressure, uh, but at the same time, the reward is is so great. 
from a from a nuts and bolts standpoint, so you come to the conclusion, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to have four spheres. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you responsible for the technical specs regarding you know what projection equipment you need, or is it on is it on someone else to get you what you need to do what you're trying to do? Uh, no, it's it's on me. Hmm. And then I I also worked with a technical director who oversaw the nuts and bolts of uh, working. Actually, there's kind of a, there was a, a, a whole team really, but it's initially my responsibility to, you know, I, I researched all kinds of things, <laughs> generators, different projectors. I made a, a, a small mock-up, did large scale projection tests, all, all kinds of things to Kind of determine how this is going to work because it's a little bit strange projecting onto a curved surface and then doing it outdoors in the freezing cold. <laughs> so there was a lot of, you know, a lot of things to research, and it turned out we didn't have electricity, so we had to use generators. And um, all generators are not created equal. So. <laughs> and with that piece, did you have to sync any media across the spheres, or no, no. I just I designed it so that we wouldn't have to sync them, and that was a very fortunate idea because the projectors didn't always talk to each other. We did have a whole system where we could log into them and make sure they're okay, and look at the cameras to see if they were still working and things like that. From a technical standpoint, if you know you know you're doing a, a ninety foot long. Uh, installation like in San Diego, do you sort of have the go-to projectors or the go-to equipment you know you're going to need, or does each piece sort of have its own requirements, or can you sort of mm-hmm. standardize that to some extent? Well, let's see. For a smaller scale, I I like Canon projectors quite a bit, even though their contrast ratio is not too great, but the quality of the pixel is really nice. Um, there's less black outline around each pixel. And the colors are good, and they're generally honest about their the brightness. Hmm. And then Epson uh, for larger scale um, has been very good to work with, and they have a like a large range of, of lenses. The image quality is quite nice. So that's up to like 15k lumens. When you get above that, then then I. St- it doesn't happen as often. So I don't, you know, it might be Barco or something like that. A lot of times the, the museum, they'll have their own equipment in stock. And then I have to research that and decide if, if it's going to work or not. And so I do know a lot of projectors. <laughs> <laughs> have you had situations where you're projecting with multiple projectors on one surface or mm-hmm. how do you handle that? Well, in the past, I invented a cable a serial, an octopus serial cable, so I could sync through via serial a whole bunch of projectors, and that worked well for years. And now you can use a single computer to, you know, output uh, from multiple graphics cards. And I'm using uh, Unity software to custom create sort of panoramic situations. Of course, you can buy off-the-shelf software. My my problem with that is. They often charge per license. Uh, they're not as adaptable, you know, if you write your own code. I guess I, I feel like I need to understand everything that goes into the piece, what, you know, the 
what codecs you're using, what soft, you know, what software does this and that. I mean, it's all kind of nuts and bolts, but I, uh, I, I feel like it's important though. So you can get the best quality possible and understand, you know, what's going on. Cause it, that, that sort of thing is changing constantly and it's a little bit tricky to track. Sure. When you're showing your piece, is that, yeah. is that rendered video that is then, you know, you're using some sort of server to push it to different projectors? No, it's generally a small, a small computer, Intel Nook, and you can output three, three graphics cards, and it's very small. And that's also a good computer to use for VR. So I've been pretty happy with that. Also using AOpen. Uh, DE7400, that has three cards. That's actually kind of nicer than the Intel, I have to say, because it's graphics cards are somehow the interface is easier to deal with. It. But either one actually works. But yeah, I prefer small computers. And so I, I go to a lot of trouble to to make that work. I've been playing with uh, using Raspberry Pis and that's... Eh. Mm, we tried that. It seems everyone tries it, and then huge amount of research on Raspberry Pi, and spent a lot of money with programmers. And the limitation at that time was 1920 by 1080, and I wanted 1920 by 1200, so it didn't work. The smally opened definitely the way way to go. I feel like I'm doing a commercial. <laughs> well, we'll put your promo code at the end for those who want to. <laughs> yeah, really. So in addition to working as an artist, you also teach. And I was mentioning before we started that I took a look at the syllabus for your 3D modeling and motion course at UCLA. And I have to tell you, I'm so jealous of these kids in one class getting exposed to Unity and Maya, 3D printing mm. and, and VR and the whole, you know, the whole gamut. Yes, those poor kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot, isn't it? It, it is, but <laughs> they learn a lot, right? And you I sort know. of take the concept of of three D in all its forms, from VR to three D printed objects, and treat it as as one thing. My my approach is throw you into the deep end with all the tools, and you've got to learn them pretty quickly so that you become you know adept, and they become a little more second nature, and then you can you know. You're free to make your your piece. I mean, it's a lot. Maybe it's similar to the way paintings taught. You learn how to work with these tools. You kind of well, you more you learn the logic behind them, and then you can adapt to any other tools that sort of come your way. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about sort of the you know the the, the temporary nature of a lot of <laughs> you know installations and and immersive pieces? Well, I kind of like that. Once they're down, they're, they sort of don't exist except for as some data or, you know, yeah, some files on a computer. So I, I must, almost appreciate that. I don't appreciate that the files might not exist because the software to play them doesn't exist anymore. And that's so frustrating. Most of most everything I've made is still accessible because I take the time to migrate. Um, I guess I've lost a couple pieces, which you know it's it's a drag. But there's so much out there that's just obliterated because you know Apple changes, gets rid of QuickTime, or Adobe does something crazy. 
you know, we're just, it's, it's a shame. Turning our attention to the future for a minute. Mm-hmm. Let's start with technology. What would you like to see from a technological standpoint as it relates to projection mapping over the next few years? Hmm. Well, I, I mean, I always want things to be smaller, faster, brighter, easier. I think we'll have a, a lot of more sculptural kinds of screens available um, as LEDs. LEDs are coming down in price quickly and they're becoming higher resolution. Um, so I think the, that'll be an interesting kind of format. Right now, we're looking at an extended period of time where people most likely aren't going to be gathering in groups. Do you see a future where we still have projection mapping and can display the types of projects you work on in museums, for example? Well, I think museums are places that can handle having, not, you know, handle not, uh, not having crowds. And certainly art galleries are not very crowded places. So I, I think those will be sort of safe kinds of things you can do because there's typically a larger space and you're pretty, you know, there's space, space around you. I have, I have a show up in Seoul right now that, that you can go see, for example. Art, art can, is one of those things can, that can um, encourage hope in any sort of art form. Whatever it is, it's so important. We will get out of this. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Ryan. Again, my thanks to Jennifer Steinkamp for joining me. You can find photos and videos of many of Jennifer's awe-inspiring projects on her website at jsteinkamp.com. And I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Projective Futures podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at projectedfutures at gmail.com or reach out on Twitter at projectedfuture, no S on the end. Or visit our website, projectedfutures.net. Again, thanks for listening, and I hope you join us next time.